Shall we begin? Uh, at your convenience. All right. Thank you very much. Um, today, uh, we are joined uh, by two very distinguished um, ambassadors um, that are most recently retired, our most recently retired ambassadors, uh, David Fisher and John Ricolta. Um, I met Gabriel, the former U.S. ambassador to Morocco, and I'll be your moderator today. David and John, Ambassador Fisher and Ricolta are coming off a very successful time uh, uh, during their tenure, having served uh, in the Middle East and North Africa. And I might add, they're two of our newest members of the Council on American Ambassadors. Uh, welcome. We're glad you could be here today with us. It's our pleasure. We're looking forward uh, to a very informative uh, and fun hour together. And Hope you'll be all inspired to ask questions um, uh, from the audience. We have a, a good group today, I think over 30. The meeting is being recorded and uh, we ask you uh, to uh, put your questions in the form of a question uh, at the bar below where it says Q&A. Um, and we'll be sure to uh, fit those in today. So we hope you're inspired to ask uh, a number of questions of us. Let's begin by... Um, talking about uh, Ambassador David Fisher, who served as U.S. Ambassador to the Kingdom of Morocco from January 2020 until January 2021. Uh, during his tenure, uh, Ambassador Fisher helped implement a new peace accord between Morocco, as you know, and, um, uh, and, uh, in, in Israel, um, and having received the National Security Award for those efforts. I, I, on a personal note, I can testify that both David and his wife, Jennifer, uh, left an indelible mark in Morocco as they were really widely um, appreciated and loved. Ambassador John Ricolta served as U.S. Ambassador to the United Arab Emirates from October uh, 2019 through January 2021. Ambassador Ricolta holds a number of honors in his years of public service, including uh, the U.S. National Security Award, again, for his role in normalizing relations between the UAE and Israel. Equally true for John, my friends in Abu Dhabi said that he was among the most productive of our ambassadors to the UAE. I wanna welcome you both. Uh, they come home with great success uh, and admiration uh, by all of us. Um, if we can, uh, I'm going to just uh, ask you to spend uh, about 10 minutes um, with a discussion about your tenure in Abu Dhabi and Rabat. What was that experience like for you, not being career ambassadors? I'm sure the experience was like no other you've had before in your lives. What were the best memories and the biggest challenges? And how did your families play into your assignment? Why don't we first start with uh, David, if you don't mind, Ambassador Fisher. Well, uh, Ambassador, I wanna tell you how much um, I appreciate the opportunity today and the preparation with which your organization took to, uh, to, to, to make this possible. The information was complete and forthright. Um, 
And I want to thank you for that. Sometimes you're asked to do things and you kind of wonder where you are. So if, if I may, um, getting to Morocco was a bigger problem than being in Morocco. And if you think back of, of, of how this all goes, you have to go through the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. And um, to those talk about the swamp of Washington, um, it, it is inappropriate. To, I, I won't go any further than that, but it's, a, it's the, the difficulties when you're a political appointee are endless. And it's, a, uh, it's an interesting thing to go through. Uh, having said that, I've never quite enjoyed the honor of serving our United States government and, and serving with pride. And, and the thing I'm gonna tell you is kind of how, how this hi it was highlighted for me. Um, I was asked to, to, to make sure, uh, even though I was sworn in December, I was asked to make sure I was there by a certain date in January. Three days before I was to arrive, four days before, they called and said, can you come a day early? And we all know you're, you're not a fully accredited diplomat until you turn in your credentials to the, to the, in our case, the king, the foreign minister. And when the king heard the American ambassador was coming, he scheduled a presentation of, of, a, of documents that he had not done in nine months. So when I, when I got to country within 24 hours, the next I saw Foreign Minister Burita, the next afternoon, I was one of 27 people that presented our to the king. And as I left that presentation, I returned to our residence. And with the Marines, we did the flag raising. And if there's anything that will focus you on the importance of what you're doing or the pride with which you feel for your country, my wife and I stood there hand in hand uh, I, I've never quite felt that amount of patriotism or that amount of, oh my God, what have I gotten myself into here? Uh, because you are seeing truly, you are representing your government, in this case, to 38 million people in Morocco. And it was, it was a clear indication of me of, of what I had in, in front of me. So it was with great pride that I represented our wonderful country. Um, and it's a, uh, a life-changing event. To get to Morocco, you know, they're our oldest ally, as I'm sure many of you or all of you know. Um, it's warm, diverse, uh, welcoming. This, our, our relationship goes back to the Barbary Coast pirates and helping us secure freedom. So. They are our oldest ally. They, we, we have the longest existing uh, written relationship with. Uh, I think that's 1787 and it's in perpetuity. Um, great friends, happy to see us. And, and we treat them with, with great respect. Um, just to talk a little bit about Morocco, uh, 
you know, the, 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 the biggest city, the financial uh, uh, capital of Morocco is in Casablanca. Uh, we have the, the, the port of Tangiers, which is rapidly becoming, and you notice I said we, I felt of myself as Moroccan when I was there and, and how I would deal with it. Um, I was there representing the United States, but I felt we were most times in a partnership kind of uh, relationship. The port of the Tangiers is rapidly becoming the busiest port on the Atlantic. And I think it's, it's in the top 20 ports now in, in, in the world. And they're building yet a, another, uh, an addition to that. And they will be building another, another uh, port down uh, in Dakla in the Southern province. So it's, it's truly, the trade is, is one of the keys. And I'll talk more about that in a minute. So we get back to cities of, of tourism. Uh, there's fabulous places from Chefchaouen to Marrakech. Um, there's, there's so much to see. Incredible farm, farmlands, um, the mountains, the Atlas Mountains, breathtaking desert, the Berber tribes in, 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 in the mountains. You know, there's a very diverse culture um, in, in Morocco from Arabs, Amanzazi, Sahari. Uh, the tribes live there with uh the, the, uh, the folks of, of the Jewish faith, Christians, uh, Muslims, we have virtually all the cultures uh, existed peacefully in Morocco for, for, for centuries. Um, the, while, while the Christian and Jewish communities are small today, uh, they are represented by the king. And, and, and the king has uh, from, he, he he is the keeper of the religious faith in the country. So even though they're a peaceful Sunni uh, nation um, and they export that peaceful uh, Muslim religion, um, he, the king himself and, and his administration pays to keep the synagogues and the, the, uh, the Jewish cemeteries um, uh, healthy. They, they, there's probably down to five, 5,000 Christians in the country, but they are, they are properly protected and it is a, uh, it's a safe place to be. Um, the priorities for me as an ambassador, I went and thought that I, I knew what I wanted to do. And when I got there, uh, you know, within a couple of months, we had COVID and our lives were turned upside down. Not once in, in all the training and all the meetings I had at the State Department did I hear the P word. Never heard pandemic, you know. And, and literally when we got to Morocco, uh, with, within two months, we're worried about trying to make, doing my first job, which is safety and security for our employees. So we did the same thing everybody was doing here, back here in the United States try to understand what COVID was. While we have a, uh, a strong health system in Morocco, you know, it's the best in Africa, but when you, when you put that kind of comment in front of it, you, you have to worry about it. Uh, we did a great job keeping our, our, our people safe. We learned a lot about distance technology. 
And we have learned quite a bit about how to really communicate. We found that we, we were better at it than we thought. You just had to get people to do it. Um, and I, I, I like to talk perhaps later about the, the economic relationships between uh, Morocco and the United States, uh, but I'll get to that in a minute. I think that's where we'll leave it for a second. Great, thank you very much, um, uh, Ambassador. Um, ambassador John Ricolta served as U.S. Ambassador uh, to the UAE, as we mentioned. So, John, um, why don't we hear from you about um, uh, what your experience was like uh, not being a career ambassador, uh, what it was like, your challenges, your successes, and how uh, you and your family uh, played into your assignment. Over to you, John. Well, thank you very much. I uh, want to thank uh, the council for the opportunity to uh, participate in this dialogue today. Uh, I know quite a few of the uh, ambassadors that uh, have signed up. You uh, racially sent me the RSVP list. And so hello to everybody. I won't uh, name you by name, but um, I'm glad I have this opportunity to interface with you. Um, I also want to thank, um, you know, our country and all that it stands for. In spite of our uh, tremendous uh, political issues here, uh, I couldn't have been prouder to be overseas and the United States is revered. I know in the UAE, like no other country, they see us as their first, second, third, fourth, fifth, a strategic ally and only turn to someone else when the United States can't deliver. Uh, to start by saying the job was much bigger than I had ever imagined and being in the UAE and uh, a combination of Dubai and Abu Dhabi, uh, I was right in the middle of absolutely everything that was going on. And so it really fulfilled for me an opportunity uh, that I always wanted to serve the government. And uh, I found that there was an honor uh, beyond belief and it'll be something that I'll cherish for the rest of my life and never forget. And I hope uh, that isn't, this isn't the last time that we can help the United States of America and our great citizenry. I would say what David did that the journey was difficult. The only person that took longer in this administration to get the post was David. He beat me by a couple months. Uh, I was 18 months from the time that I was announced by the White House to the time I actually got a vote in the Senate. Uh, and I don't think that serves our country very well. And if there's one thing that the council can do being I'm imagining there's uh, uh, ambassadors from both sides of the aisle that we're not well served by the absence of ambassadors for months on end. Um, the uh, charge d'affaires, as good as they are, uh, just don't have the same level of authority, power, access, opportunity, networking, and the list goes on, goes on and on. And when we're not at uh, our full strength at our embassies, uh, our adversaries, especially Russia and China, take full advantage of that, as I'm sure you all know. A couple of things uh, you might not be aware of concerning my uh, post. I was the first political appointee in the history of the country. Uh, the UAE is 50 years old this year, and every single person that had preceded me was a career diplomat. So there was a, a complete different kind of expectation that the Emiratis have upon my entering the country. And so uh, let me just tell you a little bit about the UAE quickly. It's a small country maybe about the size of the state of Michigan, about 10 million people, GDP of about 400 billion. Uh, and uh, it has 10 million people living in the country. It's a military and economic powerhouse, much the same way as Israel is. And uh, we'll talk about that a little bit later because that really played into the Abraham Accords. 
However, there are only 900,000 Emirati citizens. Everybody else is a, what we would call an expat. No job, you have to go home. And so that results in an enormously wealthy country, they're rich beyond all measure, uh, and use their money very, very wisely in spreading um, you know, their influence and power throughout the region and helping the United States in ways that most people don't know. They have the, we have the fourth largest trade surplus with them of anybody in the world. Uh, they've supported the United States in six major military campaigns. They have world-class intelligence gathering, which they share with us liberally. Uh, and um, uh, let me just move on to the four major issues that I faced as I got out to post. I put the first one, it's called the universe of issues. And what's wrapped up into this is just many, many things uh, that were not going well uh, with our two countries. And uh, I found out that our relationship was driven mostly by protocol. And so my first question when I got there was, where's the beef? Uh, when do we really sit down and have those kind of frank, open, honest, uh, uh, in, uh, with a certain amount of intelligent, uh, intellectual tension when does that happen? And it wasn't happening at all. That led to the strategic dialogue, which is the big issue that we were able to use uh, to prepare ourselves with the Abraham Accord. We also had the problem with Expo 2020. Now, if you're familiar with world fairs, the United States was very successful in these world fairs from almost its inception to 1994, where we basically cleaned the Soviet Union's clock every time we talked about uh, our values, our culture, our constitution. But in 1994, the United States decided to uh, no longer fund it and turn it over to the private world. And things didn't go well from 94 to 2000. And we hit a brick wall. Corporate America was not willing to um, uh, fund this any longer. And the Emiratis were beside themselves having a World's Fair of this magnitude without having the United States participating. It's like the United States not showing up at the Olympics. By the way, uh, it's public that the Emiratis have spent about $12 billion getting ready for this expo in uh, now October of 2021. Nevertheless, when I got there, uh, they knew that the, the ship was sinking very quickly and called me into my very first meeting and said, look, we need you guys there. What is it going to take? And I basically said, well, we can't do anything because we're broke. We don't have any money. And they said, well, we're prepared to gift you $60 million to build, to build your pavilion and uh, I don't want to spend too much time on this, but the hard part was not getting the Emiratis to give the money. The hard part was getting the United States of America to accept the money because many thought it was humiliating. Uh, COVID was a major issue too. The Emirati was right on the forefront of, uh, of uh, trying to figure out how to uh, solve this dilemma. They had partnered with the Chinese on vaccine and testing, and that threw a monkey wrench into our relationship uh, because of intelligent reasons. Uh, from there, uh, we had a, a, a maligned and a very aggressive Iran who was threatening uh, constantly. Uh, for all of those of you who, who uh, read all your intelligence every day, uh, you would see just how uh, maligned and how uh, vicious Iran can be. And then, of course, that all led to the Abraham Accords, a, a really a fantastic journey that I'm happy to share with you uh, as we go through this session. Uh, one last thing I'll say is uh, I was asked the question, how did your families participate in this assignment? And my wife, and I know Jennifer, I know, by the way, David and uh, Jennifer live about one, one mile from us here in Bloomfield Hills, Michigan. And so we've been sharing all kinds of uh, trials and tribulations together throughout this whole journey. Uh, and they were really a great comfort to Terry and I, and I'm so sure we, to them, uh, as we kept on getting denied in Washington. But 
Uh, the things that my wife did while we we're in uh, in country, she really endeared herself to the Emiratis. First, she decided to wear an abaya full time, and I don't believe I ever saw her in country without an abaya on when we were out in public. Uh, number two, uh, she adopted and foster cared six of their national dogs called the Saluki. Uh, it looks like a greyhound. It's a very docile and wonderful race dog. Uh, and now we, in fact, brought one back to the United States. But the biggest thing that she did, if you're familiar with the art in the embassy program, is that rather than accepting art from the State Department, we decided to use the soft power of the ambassador's post uh, to assemble a world-class art collection of contemporary works by Middle Eastern artists. Uh, we assembled 44 museum pieces, uh, uh, and completely uh, outfitted the first floor of the CMR into a, basically a mini museum. This allowed us to gain a deeper understanding of the culture uh, through a common understanding through art. Uh, and the response was absolutely overwhelming by the UAE leadership. We've got the, the powers to be, the, the ruler, uh, his brothers to come to the house itself, to view the uh, art collection and to have some really good open dialogue about how art can play a very positive uh, theme in development of the culture of not only the Middle East, but of our country. Um, it opened doors, it fostered relationships, unimaginable at the time of my confirmation. A theme finally emerged, uh, and that theme uh, was inspired by the conflict, the oppression, and the death of so many people in the Middle East. After a numerous magazine, newspaper, and media reports, my wife decided to publish a book uh, once the Abraham Accords were announced, and uh, we participated and collaborated with the Minister of State for Foreign Affairs, uh, Dr. Anwar Gagash, uh, who got involved. And after a lot of discussion, we titled this book, A Transcending Conflict. And I think that's the part where the UAE is right now with the Abraham Accords. They're about to transcend the conflict of the UAE. I'll stop there also and uh, open, got, open this up to questions and answers. So uh, thanks again for the opportunity. Thank you, John and, and David, and you, you both have shown us what a great example you are of promoting our values overseas, um, given your knowledge and the way in which you approach your job and what you had to say to, to us today. Um, all the people in the audience, I believe, are former uh, U.S. ambassadors, and I think they'll agree with me that uh, your two uh, presentations were informative and uh, very much appreciated. Thank you. Um, let me ask you another question before we get into the meat of uh, the Abraham Accords. Um, how did you view your position being a non-career FSO? What, do you, what did you see as your strengths and your challenges? Um, uh, David, do you want to go first? I'm honored to. Um, well, when you get a, a non-career you get a political and you most always get a couple. And, and in, in John and Terry's case, you got two totally committed and accomplished people. And in, in, in our case, um, you know, Jennifer threw herself into the job. Um, you know, you have a, a social side, you have a work side, you have a diplomatic side. Um, and, and I have to compliment all the wives that do this. Um, the term in the State Department is trailing spouse. 
Uh, I might work at changing that title. Uh, we actually did a logo of me in the limousine, Jennifer behind on a moped. You know, that's kind of how they view it. In fact, Jennifer and Terry set, I think, a standard. When, when we come at things, we come at it together. We're going to work it from, she rebuilt our house, re-landscaped it during COVID um, to getting out in the community, leading uh, some charity efforts. Uh, she was, she could go deliver things to the poor. We, we took over a Ford um, Explorer that she would fill the back of this Explorer with, with paper goods and cans and food and so forth. And she could go anywhere with those diplomatic license plates on her car. You know, a spouse can be incredibly effective and in, in, in an opinion maker. And she she did a, did a did a great job with that. But you get us that come with not this is how we do it so many times, but why do you do it this way? I spent a lot of time asking why, why, why. Why isn't this done? Why did this happen? And when I finally kind of got my opinions ready, um, and I probably spent half my time always saying, Gee, why would you do it that way? And I, I was able to, to, to impact it some, as, as John alluded to, the, the journey to get approved is sad. The fact that Morocco, our oldest ally, oldest ally, didn't have an ambassador for almost three years. Um, and and, and they, they are in a rigid diplomatic structure. The foreign minister will barely speak to a charge. Um, the king, not at all. Um, the king allowed his then teenage son to meet with a charge at, at a book fair but not really spend any time with them. It's embarrassing to our country. So I wholeheartedly agree with John. Uh, we've, got to, we've got to help fix this system. I think in my mind, the biggest thing that, that, that I did is that I wasn't encumbered by traditions of the past. I would, I would see something I wanted to do and I would go at it. I, I wouldn't ask how or why, I would just go try. I would go do it. And we, we, it was surprising. They were thirsty for that. There had been no relationship. Uh, I made a point to meet every minister as soon as I could, face-to-face, person-to-person, and, and build some relationships that I'll probably have all my life. And, and I, I just, that's how I viewed it. John? Uh, so uh, let, let's just start with uh, how I looked at myself and my strengths. So I'm a business guy in a tough industry, um, ran a big company for almost 40 years. And uh, my strengths were, you know, strategy. I was a disruptor, uh, good communicator, believed in never letting a good crisis go to waste. Uh, absolute result oriented, uh, not very good on aspirational kind of goals where you really couldn't define a metric. Uh, I'm a good listener. Uh, 
I'm a promoter of open, frank, honest, direct, a dynamic dialogue. I don't mind a good intellectual fight, but I'm also a team player. It took me 60 days to recognize the power that an ambassador has. And I realized that you can almost do anything you want with the consequences coming later. And if you're willing to take those risks, there's almost nothing that you can't get done, especially if you have the support of the president. And in my case, a very close and personal friend of mine, the National Security Advisor, Robert O'Brien. A uh, little later on, uh, I will tell you a couple of inside stories about how they both uh, gave me the confidence that I needed to go well beyond the expected. Uh, taking a risk, knowing that I had their support uh, and both of them willing to really get down and talk about policy and what needed to be done. Now I got some weaknesses too. And uh, in some respects, they played into uh, my success. First of all, I don't think it's any secret to know that the State Department was for all intents and purposes sidelined by the administration. At least in my case, it was. Uh, they did not play any kind of an active role whatsoever in the Abraham Accords. As a matter of fact, my embassy was a little ticked off at me uh, after it is now saying, did you know? And of course I did for about 60 or 70 days prior to it. Uh, and for me, uh, one of my weaknesses, I, I don't have a problem going it alone. And that's really not a good thing to do when you have a big embassy staff of a thousand people and you're relying on them for all the other things and all the other responsibilities that we have, which are massive, which we haven't even touched on today. Just the running of the embassy and keeping those thousand people safe and happy. And I wanna just interject something right here. I have the highest regard and the highest admiration for virtually every single person that worked in my embassy. They were loyal, they were hard workers, they were smart, they were dedicated. Uh, they were everything that you would want in a first-class employee. And I said of my eight or nine direct reports, there wasn't a single one of them that I wouldn't bring back and work for my country. So I have a very, very high regard for the people working in the State Department. I have absolutely no regard for the system that's in place. It was born, who knows, in Ben Franklin's time, modified the last time in the 50s or the 60s. The technology is horrible. The FAM is restrictive. Uh, the way people get promoted is so far uh, political uh, uh, and risk adverse, it's no wonder that these people will even stay within the State Department. And so my challenge was to figure out how to take this and to put it into some kind of a fighting team, build the esprit de corps uh, that was necessary in order to allow an ambassador to be a disruptor and protect me from getting myself in trouble. And that's exactly what they did. Well, um, talk about candor. Really appreciate uh, the candor from both of you and really gives us a lot of uh, thought for uh, today. I want to remind everybody that they can go to the bottom of your screen where it says Q&A and you can type in your question. Let's jump to the, the meat of uh, today's discussion, the Abraham Accords. Um, how do I put it? I mean, how the heck did they come about? Um, it really came as a surprise to so many people in the world. And I suspect you two were among a very few uh, who might even have known what was going on. We would love to hear the inside story. Uh, why don't we start with John first? Give it to us, John. What's the inside story? Well, I think, uh, you know, you, you all know what the inside story is, is because even though it didn't play out in public, when you look back, you'll see all these 
uh, particular uh, things came into place all at the same time. Uh, first of all, I think the most important thing is that uh, this president and his son-in-law, Jared Kushner, decided to embark on a process that, quite frankly, no one else believed in. There had been no movement in 25 years. Uh, there was no chance for comprehensive, comprehensive peace with the Palestinians. And we needed to abandon the all or nothing approach. And I think that's exactly what they did and to try a solution of gradual incremental steps. And I think as we go through today, you'll see how these incremental steps all played out. I actually took the time to sit down and list the 14 incremental steps that all led to the Abraham Accords. And I'm gonna just read them off here really quickly and we can talk about any one of them. I think Jared Kushner is unsung hero. Uh, he's the guy that had the patience. He's very smart, very disciplined, uh, a, a very, very uh, a good a listener. And uh, you know this wouldn't have happened without him and without the president. The two stopping annexation was a big thing to the Emiratis. Three, Israel's 70-year economic success all of a sudden was playing out uh, for the Emiratis who have an economy that's about the same size. Iran's failure to use the JCPOA to amend fences. Uh, the failed states of Syria, Iraq, Yemen, Lebanon, and then of course the influence of Hezbollah, Hamas, and the Houthis. Then there's the Islamic Brotherhood and uh, Islamic uh, extremism. Uh, there's the corrupt and failed uh, Palestinian leadership. It's old, uh, it looks back, it's uh, you know, victim oriented and they need new leadership to look forward as to what peace and prosperity can bring forth. And I think the Palestinians may be there at this point in time. Religion, religion played a huge role, especially in the Emiratis case who had embraced all the Abraham religions uh, embarked upon letting all the faiths practice there. There are now synagogues, uh, Mormon uh, uh, temples, uh, Christian churches, uh, uh, Catholic parishes, uh, in addition to the Eastern uh, religions from India and China. Uh, the permanent decline of the price of oil had a huge impact on where are we gonna go from here? And the Emiratis were very concerned about their economy and what was going to happen to it. Uh, the speed of change of the world today uh, required some new and fresh thinking. Uh, the ongoing technological revolution and how Israel itself had emerged as this uh, center of innovation, it's exactly what the Emiratis want and what they strive for. Um, the economic collapse because of COVID-19 and the only way out was rapid economic growth and the UAE and Israel both saw the entire Middle East, 500 million people strong, as an unbelievable future market. Uh, trust and admiration for the United States with the Emiratis had grown significantly in the 10 months that we were there because of a number of reasons. Uh, and uh, finally, the need for modernity to be able to attract talent from all over the world. Because if you recall, there's less than a million Emiratis. Uh, and they need to attract the kind of talent that's gonna move their country into uh, the 21st century. So you add all of these up, and you can really three put them into uh, three categories. What were they? One, talk about the administration, the Trump administration, everybody. Two, security and defense and how Israel and the UAE needed to come together because of the perception that the United States was slowly withdrawing from the Middle East. And finally, economic growth, which will be the solution to the terrible uh, economic effects of COVID-19. So we'll just start right there, but that's the beginning of this journey and it was incremental 
step by step, month by month. And the Emiratis would call me into a meeting and they would say, for instance, so today we are prepared if the, uh, if the uh, Israelis were to stop an annexation or at least suspend it, we will let them signal to them that we're prepared to allow them to keep the settlements that they have in place. And so every week, uh, a week or two would go by and something new would emerge. And the next thing you knew, 60 days out, we're now talking normalization. So I'll stop there and give David a chance. John, um, uh, you're, suggest you're saying that it was a 60-day process, essentially, correct? Yes. Um, were there times during that 60 days when you thought, this isn't going to work? Never. When they came, this is interesting. When they came to you, when you first found out about it, was it pretty cooked by then, do you think? I think if you go read the Abraham Accords, the word cooked is an interesting word. I think that the Abraham Accords, number one, were never intended to be a peace agreement. And number two, they are never intended to trade tit for tat. They are aspirational goals set forth by the Israelis and the Emiratis that would lead to normalization and to a better future for both countries through peace and prosperity. Now, there are all these elements that were floating around behind it, but no one of those elements, including the F-35, were ever expressly uh, or explicitly discussed or promised during the lead up to the signing on uh, uh, September 15th. Really interesting. Thank you so much for that insight. David, yeah, your turn. Um, open the door to Morocco. Tell us how it happened. Well, I think that, you know, I, I've got to absolutely agree with John. Um, first of all, done outside of the, the State Department, 100%. This all came out of, of Robert O'Brien's office, uh, the president, and, and without Jared Kushner and Avi Berkowitz to some extent, this would not have happened. Um, they, they, they may have been young enough to know, not to know that you couldn't do this. Uh, they, they, they proceeded forward at, at a time and at a level that it was, it was head of state to head of state. It was foreign minister. Other than Pompeo at the State Department, I don't think anybody knew. And, you know, they just decided it was going to be, and, and there was, we did the same thing with the CDC. They came to me one day when I was in Washington to talk about it and said, we're just going to leave everybody else out for a while. So without Jared Kushner, without Robert O'Brien, without a, 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 a warm reception um, at, at, at the Israel, Morocco, uh, UAE, this wasn't going to happen. But this really, you know, when you go to where you want to go, John talked about uh, economic areas. This is, about, this is about peace and stability. Uh, this is long-term safety. Iran is a very evil player. And they need, it needs to be done together. John had a view from his house of Iran. I'm on the other side of the continent. But it, it's just like we heard about Iran today. We heard about China almost every day. And in, in, in the case of Iran, we need to be unified. We need to act 
And yeah, I do think the United States was pulling back, which will make everybody a little bit nervous. Morocco, we were moving closer to, but much of Africa, we were pulling away from. And it, and it is absolutely about peace, security, the future, trade, religious openness, uh, and, and not really tolerance, but embracing religions. Uh, you know, you, you, you may have a belief system that goes one way, but we're, we're going to allow that, which is not typical in, in some of these countries. Um, and I guess I would have to leave it at peace and prosperity. There's, there's, you could fill in 50 or 100 lines under that, but without that as a goal, this wouldn't work. In our case with Morocco, um, there was no tit for tat, but what Morocco um, and had from the first day I, I Morocco in State Department discussions, I heard of the Western Sahara. I heard of the failed leadership of the Saharis, the corrupt leadership in the, the Tindaf camps, the, um, the, the people that, that uh, have prospered off of this relationship are uh, basically are corrupt. Either, either in the camps or we tried to talk with them during this process. Um, we talked to people in Spain, we talked to people in, in, in Algeria, um, and we got nowhere. We absolutely got nowhere. We wanted to have a discussion and they kept saying, we're happy. Uh, it's not unlike Hamas or, 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 or the, the leaders in the, the Palestinian organization. I think they're old and failed leadership. Many of them are corrupt. Uh, it's the only job they have had. And it's all they know is to fight the enemy they know. They don't know how to go forward and talk and build a relationship because that will change what their life is. So in, in, in our case, it was, uh, we, I wish we had been earlier, but we ran into a roadblock with Senator Inhofe. And we could have, we could have done this sooner, but the president had a lot of respect for Senator Inhofe. Um, he is a uh, head of the, uh, the Armed Services Committee very important man in the president's eyes. And uh, it's the only thing Senator Inhofe asked of the president was not to do this. Not really sure to this day why. I've talked to the senator myself. Um, uh, General Correa and I were in his office a couple times talking to him, but uh, he, he has an affection for, for the Polisario that we, is unexplained in my mind. But so we, we perhaps would have done this sooner, but the, the relationship, John hasn't really touched on it, but, but he will a little bit. What we need to do in Morocco's case is that uh, we, we need to bring the Abraham Accord partners into Morocco uh, to create uh, more tourism, more economic investment, um, to tie these areas closer together. And 
without this accord, this wouldn't have happened. Even though Israel and Morocco have a long and rich back channel, that, and I'll mention this, I mentioned to you when we were talking, during the Second World War, uh, Rommel was knocking on the door of Morocco and um, wanted to come in and uh, uh, deport the Jewish population. And the Sultan was clear in his comments and that we have nothing in Morocco but Moroccans. Probably saved hundreds of thousands of lives. And the, the, the Israelis have never, have never forgotten that. No matter what happened in the relationship over the, over the next 50 years, there was always a vibrant, warm, and supportive back channel. Um, now it's out in front again. Uh, they will have their embassy open if it's not open already very soon. Uh, we, we, Morocco is in uh, Israel. They, I think they're ready to, to open now. Um, that will bring economic ties. That will bring uh, more tourism. The two things that are the sticking points are the uh, getting through the uh, uh, airline regulations and trying to sort out that and the banking regulations, uh, customs agreements and so forth will come. And we will see investment from the UAE, from other Arab countries coming into Israel, I'm sorry, coming, well, through Israel or coming from Israel to Morocco. Um, the, the hardest nut to crack would have been Saudi Arabia, but Saudi, you know, they, they, they're, they're, but I'm gonna finish up with, if it wasn't for Jared, for, for the White House and, and Mohammed VI, he wanted to do this, but he wanted it done properly. So let me, uh, well, you, you touched upon the, the um, side agreement where um, uh, I wouldn't call it a side agreement, but simultaneous with the accords, um, President Trump unilaterally uh, recognized uh, Moroccan sovereignty over the Sahara. Uh, do you see that as uh, uh, any downside to that in sense of trying to move this forward through the UN process, David? No, sir. This, this, this wasn't. This isn't like some of your other countries. This is this. This property has been under Moroccan control before. It's not Morocco versus somebody. Um, you know, the, the problem with the UN, it's 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 a little bit like what happens. They're a big organization. It's very political. You know, it's hard to get something through when you have so many competing people want to stop things for other reasons. The politics at the UN, and you all probably understand this better than I, is th that's the deepest pool. And it is, you, you really wonder what some people are thinking about sometimes. We're spending, you know, the UN, other people, 50 to $100 million a year on the Western Sahara, and it's, it's, it's not smart. We, this needed to happen. And without President Trump, this wouldn't have happened. Um, you know, he's just, it's like moving the, the embassy uh, in, in, in Israel. If it's time, let's do it. 
and let's stop talking about it. I think that's what you get when businessmen that finally said, okay, we, we actually gave Morocco what we had promised them in writing in 1999. We actually gave them a little bit less. Um, boy, do I know that one. <laughs> um, let, me, uh, let me jump back to John and uh, ask him, um, you know, how can President Biden and his team build on these accords? How can, you know, where do we go from here? How can we build upon them and inspire other countries um, to get on this peace train? And a little side note, um, John, as well. Uh, the second question related is, does this help or hurt the uh, accord, the uh, opportunity for Palestine and Israel to find some normalization together? Is it good or bad for them? Um, and also, how does how do you see and what advice would you give to President Biden and his team to move the process forward and even gain more from them? Let's start with the Palestinian issue. Um, from the day I got there and uh, talking to the Emiratis, everybody recognizes that the Palestinian issue needs to be resolved. That this is not a delay. This is not a abandonment of the two-state solution. Palestinians deserve uh, to have uh, a state of their own. And the way that's achieved by them coming to the negotiating uh, table uh, bringing their best argument, recognizing that peace and prosperity for their youth and their, their population is the only solution to this. Uh, terror, death, and war is not only expensive, destructive, painful, but it takes decades to recover from it. Uh, we're witnessing that now in Iraq and in Venezuela, uh, unfortunately in, in Liberia, not Liberia, uh, Lebanon and Libya. Um, and, and, and so we need to get them to the negotiating table. The problem is they don't want to negotiate. Uh, their leadership likes what they have, uh, payments. There's a little story about COVID. Uh, so when COVID broke, uh, Gaza and the West Bank had no uh, PPP, if you will, and the Emiratis sent a couple big 747s filled with masks and uh, test kits and the whole deal. And they landed them in, uh, in Tel Aviv, uh, Ben-Gurion Airport, and the Palestinians went nuts, uh, criticized them for landing a plane there, refused to take the COVID uh, materials. Uh, but then privately, they said, well, don't remove them quite yet. Uh, after we get our pound of flesh in the world media, uh, we're going to want to take that stuff. And they did. And this is a sort of a turning point from the Emiratis' viewpoint <coughs> that they'd had enough. Uh, uh, they needed them to come to the table. And, uh, and so I think when you ask the question, is good or bad, it is nothing but good for uh, the Palestinians. Uh, building this uh, bridge between Israel and the UAE. Just the other day, the UAE announced a $10 billion investment fund that they're putting into Israel. I'm telling you, nobody recognizes the uh, enormous amount of money that the Emiratis can invest in other countries. And they're only too willing to do that in the Palestinian authorities' hands in the West Bank. So I think it is nothing but good. You need to get them to the table. Nobody's been able to get them to the table for 25 years. And the two times that they had an opportunity to settle, 
they would have had much better deals than they could have today. And so you'd have to ask yourself, what kind of a deal can they have five years from now, 10 years from now, if they wait for, uh, for, for these economic bridges to be built? So that's number one. Uh, that's your second question. Your first question on what would the Biden administration doing? I think Jared Kushner wrote an unbelievable op-ed. I don't know if it was in the uh, New York Times or the uh, Wall Street Journal just a week ago, this past weekend. And he basically gave uh, the Biden administration high marks for how they were handling uh, the JCPOA re-entering, uh, what signals they were sending to, uh, uh, to Iran, uh, what they were doing. Uh, they already had a first strike in, uh, in, uh, in Iraq. So I don't see the Biden administration walking away from what was done here. And I, I think that you know the press and, and, and a lot of the detractors like to make a big deal out of this. But what they can do is to take the incremental gains that were made with the Abraham Accords and build on them in the ways that they see fit. Uh, and I think that's exactly what they intend on doing. I wouldn't criticize them at all today for the progress that they've made in such a, a short period of time. Ambassador Gabriel, you're on mute. Thank you. Um, this has been a remarkable um, session, guys. Um, I have to tell you that we could not have read this in any public discourse. Uh, what you've told us today, I think, surpasses everything that we could have expected out of uh, this session today. Um, be, I um, would give you each 30 seconds if you want to say one thing for 30 seconds, and then I want to close off. Um, David, uh, why don't you go first? I think, again, I would like to, to, to repeat the comment, serving our government, serving um, in a foreign land was an incredible honor, and it's something I will truly never forget. The, uh, the opportunity to, to uh, be part of, of something like the Abraham Accords, to, to make a difference, uh, to change a map, which we were able to do, it's something that we, we, we don't get. But the lesson learned by the people that won't talk, that won't get along, be it the PLO, be, be it any, any of these groups. In my case, it, it was the Polisario, um, would not have a conversation. They would do nothing to fix it. And when you dig down and you find their leadership is mostly corrupt and living well in Spain, those that don't have a red notice on them, because there are some that are really gangsters. Thank um, you. I just have to tell you, it's, it's an honor to have been there and to serve. Thank you, uh, Ambassador Fisher. Ambassador Ricotta. Yeah, I would, I'd like to just say two quick things. Number one, the courage uh, that the UAE uh, leadership showed in uh, signing this accord without letting one single Arab country know in advance that they were contemplating that and weren't sure of what the blowback and risk would be is, is absolutely historic in itself. And I, I commend them. And if you were to study the history of the UAE and see the enormous progress they've made in the last 50 years to become uh, this a model nation among Arab states, and you will see their continuing drive uh, to be a model country 
uh, on a global scale, uh, I really have to hand my hands off to them. And then the second person that I think has not gotten uh, much uh, enough credit is Jared Kushner. For without him, uh, wouldn't have happened. All those other reasons that I delineated will still be here today. He recognized the moment of opportunity, the necessity of now, uh, and developed a vision for peace like no one else did for 25 years under enormous criticism from the press and the diplomatic community. He built a team uh, that had the fortitude and discipline to see it through to the finish without ever once uh, 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 breathing a word publicly uh, to allow uh, the detractors to, uh, to kill it. Uh, and so I was just uh, honored to be a part of that team and, and will always relish uh, the uh, success that we had. Uh, thank you for well, the opportunity today. Well, I have to say um, uh, this has been a remarkable hour and a very educational one, and we can't thank you enough. Uh, I want to thank Ambassador Fisher and Ambassador Ricolta, as well as uh, CAA, headed by our fearless and most able-bodied leader, uh, Tim Charba, our director, Kathleen Sheehan, communications program coordinator, Jocelyn Young. And most of all, thank everybody for participating in this call. We wish you a happy and a healthy uh, spring season. Thank you again to everyone. Thank you for having me. Thank you very much.